I, I'm not quite sure how to follow that, so, uh, but that was some good worship. Praise God, and thank you, Brother Tim, Sister Carly, for, for that. Um, I did really good about uh, not singing my heart out this morning um, to preserve my voice. Um, and then Jeff was kind enough to bring me water, so get comfortable. Y'all are in trouble. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm Sean. I'm the associate pastor here, if you don't know me. Um, and we are very happy to have you with us this morning. Pardon me while I go ahead and make use of some of this water. And uh, I'm very honored to get to bring the word to you this morning. Um, we are picking up where we left off. Once upon a time in the book of Romans. So if you've been with us for a while, we've been in Romans. We'll be continuing where we left off in chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. So chapter 9, verse 30, I'll give you a moment to search your Bibles or your Bible apps or whatever you have um, in order to find that. They stick this in my face because I guess I'm a little softer spoken than Jeff is. All right, so again, that's Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Let's go ahead and do, if you've listened to me, you know I like to do review before we get started. So let's go ahead and do a little bit of that. Let's get caught up to where we've been so far to bring us to today. Um, so if you recall, we are in the book of Romans, uh, again, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, which had a very high concentration of the Jewish peoples living in the city. It was uh, the highest concentration of Jewish population outside of Israel and Judea. So in the city of Rome, he knows he's uh, addressing a church, a church that he hasn't been to, a church that he very likely doesn't know very many, if any people at all, um, that, but that was probably planted um, perhaps by people um, who had heard Paul on some of his missionary journeys and come to know Christ through that, or perhaps even by the apostle Peter himself. Um, but uh, this church is very likely com comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and we see that very clearly in the epistle to the Romans. We see Paul addressing both the Jewish population in the congregation and the Gentile population. And he addresses their very specific backgrounds um, from which God called them out of darkness and into the light of his son. We see um, him addressing the Gentiles and their absence of the law. Um, them not knowing anything about God as revealed as he revealed to himself to the Jewish people and um, and their particular struggles their particular um, that particular uh, set of circumstances and then he turns around and addresses the Jewish uh, population of the congregation um, who had the benefits of the law of the what we know as the Old Testament and uh, instead of having instead of using that, um, to shine God's light to the nations, um, having actually abused that position and using it to essentially browbeat uh, those the other nations, the Gentiles, and using it as a weapon rather than as a means of grace. And we see um, we see Paul really expounding on the gospel um, up to this point in in his letter to the Roman church. And uh, all the way up to what we see, um, even talking about his own struggle in Romans 7, um, regardless of what your particular interpretation of that is, whether it's a past struggle or a present struggle, it's Paul's struggle, period. Um, and he, he conveys that to the church in Rome, and um, he even goes so far as to talk about Israel's rejection being a reflection of God's purpose 
and then Israel's reflection and God's justice, which comes about as a result of that, which is what we talked about the last time we were in the book of Romans. Um, and that brings us, and he, uh, Paul even goes back to the Old Testament, to Scripture, to show how this isn't something new, this isn't something unforeseen by God, this was actually something predicted and ordained by God regarding his people rejecting the Messiah. And that brings us to our passage today, um, where a lot of these points that, uh, that Paul has covered up to this point in the, in the letter actually kind of really come together. Um, and he really drives the point home regarding salvation in Christ. So that brings us to verse 30 in chapter 9. So I ask if you are able that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. And the word of God says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we are so blessed. We are so honored. We are so privileged God, to be gathered here today. Lord, to get to open your word that you have not only written, but you have had translated and you have preserved for your people that we may come to know you, that we may seek you while you may be found and that we may seek you where you may be found God please bless our gathering this morning show up Lord open our eyes our hearts our minds our souls our bodies and our everything to the truth of your word as presented to us today. Lord, may we not take this for granted. May we not spurn this gift. But Lord, may your spirit apply it to your people. For we need it desperately. We don't want to leave here the same as when we arrived. We want to leave here holier and more like Christ. Grant us this in accordance with your command. For it's in his name that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so 
We have just read the passage. We have just read God's very word. And Paul starts off like he does many portions of scripture throughout this letter. When he starts with a question, what shall we say then? The question is really, um, really him introducing the, the conclusion. And not, not even so much the conclusion, but the summary of all that he said. Which in turn brings him to the conclusion. And the, and the summary is something that that is really to this first century Jewish mind. is something that is really unexpected, but also profound. But even though it is unexpected, he has proven it through his use of scripture drawn from the Old Testament. He says, what shall we say then? What further is there to be said? What could we possibly add to what I have presented to you by the Spirit of God as he has impressed it upon me? That Gentiles, non-Jewish people, those outside of the Old Covenant, that these people who did not pursue righteousness, these people who not only did not know of the things of God, but had no interest. These people who not only rejected God, not only neglected God, but did so to such a degree that they didn't even give him a thought. The pursuit of righteousness was not in their mind. It was not part of their focus. It was not, it had nothing, it was not part of their, their makeup. As a, as a culture and he's addressing this to it's essentially your translation might call might use the word the Greeks instead of the Gentiles but it's essentially the same thing in this part of the world if you weren't of the Jewish culture you were probably in, heavily influenced by the Greek culture that the pursuit of righteousness was not a consideration it was not something that you focused your time thinking about why? Because in, the, in this Greek culture, the gods were made in our image. And when the gods were like you, there was nothing to aspire to. Because you were already like them, because they were already like you. So the pursuit of righteousness was real, wasn't even really a concept to the Gentile mind. So these Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. These people who did not know God, who did not know his word, his law, did not know what he's done for his people, did not know or care anything about him. These ones have attained to righteousness, have been granted the gift of righteousness these ones have have to quote Paul elsewhere become the very righteousness of God even the righteousness of faith now what he's saying here by this word even is he, he's describing the righteousness that is being described here it is the righteousness of of faith, a faith in whom, a faith in Christ. He's saying these people who knew not God nor his ways 
who love not God nor his word. These people have attained to the righteousness which he has called of his people, which he has called of all people to come to. These Gentiles, these God-haters, these God-neglectors and rejectors, these have attained to the righteousness of faith. They have attained to the righteousness, your translation might say, by faith. So the trans so the, the righteousness that they that these Gentiles have, have attained to, the, the righteousness that these Gentiles, these non these non-Jewish people have come to is not a righteousness of the law. It's a righteousness of faith. By faith. And this righteousness is a gift. But Israel. Now who is Israel? That takes us all the way back to Genesis. When Jacob is renamed Israel, which means struggles with God, strives with God. This people of God who, who are named struggles with God. These, this people whom God has condescended to establish a covenant with. This people whom God has so graciously bowed down, bended over to establish a relationship with. This people who are called by his name. The last, the last syllable in Israel is El. El, which is the Hebrew word for God, so they are very, very clearly and plainly called by His name, El. Israel pursuing the law of righteousness. Now, this law of righteousness can have multiple meanings, but I think it's quite clear here that, at the very least, and perhaps the most broadly. It is that which is presented in the pages of the Old Testament. The scriptures that they have received and have been handed down from generation to generation. They have been given this gift of the law. Which can also be summed up in the Mosaic law. They've been given this gift. Ways in which your behavior must conform in order to be considered righteous. They have pursued this law. They have tried to attain this level of righteousness. And this, when we talk about righteousness, that, that Greek word that we translate that, it's the same Greek word that we get justified, justification. So the same people who have pursued the law of justification, who have pursued the law of being Justified, being declared righteous, being declared right in the eyes of God. They have pursued this law. This sounds like a good thing. They, they have, whereas earlier Paul has described them as people who have abused the law and used it as a weapon against those 
whom they were actually meant to reflect the light of that law towards the Gentiles. This people who were abusing the law were also pursuing the law. And they were pursuing the law in such a way as to try to attain, obtain this righteousness that the law describes for themselves. Let this not escape the attention of the church today. Let this not escape our, our grasp. Let, let us not just gloss over this and think that this is merely a problem of past generations. But how many in the church today and how often in our own life does our theology kind of default back to this legalistic, performance-driven mentality? How often in our own spiritual walk, in our own Christian daily life, do we go from relying by faith on the righteousness of another to instead trying to perform our way into the good graces of God? And how often when things go poorly, do we so default back to that I'm being punished for something I've done bad? Or when things are going well, default to I must be doing something right. Instead of seeing these things for what they are as God's grace in blessing and in discipline. We so, so easily and so readily revert back to this mindset that Job's friends had that if we're if we're hurting if we're struggling if we are in pain if we are experiencing turmoil and distress and anxiety and depression and grief then God has abandoned us because we've done something wrong friends Paul is going to tell us and I'm, I'm going to kind of give it away Paul is going to tell us here that has nothing to do with it. That punishment you think you're enduring that was poured out on the cross. You're not being punished as in punitively for your sins. You may very well be being disciplined in order to have that sin removed from your from your cabinet from your behavior but you're not being punished there, there's no punitive there's no retribution principle taking place in your life Christian on the contrary what's taking place in your life is sanctification is growth is an increase in righteousness the very righteousness that Paul is here describing and has been throughout the first nine chapters of the, of the epistle to the Romans. He's saying that this righteousness cannot be earned. It cannot be attained. Not only can you get to it by your works, you can't keep it by your works. 
That's not the deal. Paul is saying here quite clearly that what the Gentiles, those who did not have the benefit of prior revelation, what they had attained to, Israel, who has been blessed with this benefit, they have not attained to it because they have got it backwards. You don't become righteous to, to earn the grace of God. You are granted the grace of God in order that you might become righteous. Pardon me. Thank you again for the water death. It's really helping. So, what Paul here, what he's been doing, largely up to this point, is he has been, he has been contrasting the typical Jewish interpretation of what salvation was going to look like and the reality of what God always intended salvation to look like. Whereas the typical Jewish interpretation was that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to bring essentially military and political victory to his ethnic people and through that, recreate the world and bring salvation to possibly other nations. What Paul is showing here is that, and what he's been showing up to this point is that, no, the Messiah is going to come. And by and large, the people through whom he comes, Israel, are going to reject him. And it's going to be for the most part, the nations, those outside of this Old Testament covenant that are going to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ, that are going to be grafted in, as he later uses, as he later illustrates, will be grafted into the people of God, will be brought from these non-God-fearing, God-hating trees those branches will be removed and implanted into the people of God through Jesus Christ. So the Jewish mind here is thinking, even though they have the scriptures, the very scriptures that Paul is referencing to make his point, they have for, for many years, for centuries, believed that salvation was going to come politically, militarily, legally, through this Messiah, when Paul is saying, no, the Messiah has come, and in accordance with scriptures, as prophesied by your very own prophets, was rejected by you. So this Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. So this, this very thing that the Jewish audience, the Jewish people have been struggling, have been trying to get to, they have failed to do so. But these Gentile peoples who have never even considered pursuing righteousness, they have attained to it. And Paul continues in verse 32, why? Why is this? That's the natural question. Why are these people who never cared about God or his word 
or his law, why did they get to righteousness? But the people whom God revealed this righteousness to, through his word, this people, why haven't they got it? And don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying every non-Jewish person experiences salvation. And every Jewish person does not experience salvation. Clearly, as we have seen, not just through the pages of this letter, but through the pages of the Gospels, we see there are some Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there are many non-Jews who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. We understand that. It's not a, it's not a shifting from the nation of Israel to every other nation. It's in fact a realization, a fulfillment of who God's people actually have always looked like. Who God's people have actually always been promised and prophesied to be. And it's not simply a nation state. And as Paul has said and made the point very clearly before this, it doesn't matter who your dad is. It doesn't matter how far back you can trace your bloodline to the person of Abraham, I, to the persons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or if you can go back even further, it doesn't matter. What matters is faith in Christ. Why didn't the, is the people of Israel, the assumed people of God, why didn't they experience or attain to the law of righteousness when the Gentiles did? Because they did not seek it by faith. Because they didn't seek it by faith. Because the, the people of Israel, by and large, for the most part, did not seek righteous, the righteousness of God in faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. They misunderstood what the law was primarily meant to do. They looked at the law. And instead of seeing what they were supposed to see, they saw merely and only a list of rules to be obeyed, to be followed without question and without concern. And when you look at the law and that's all you see, you have missed so very much. If we look at the law and we do not see reflected in it the character, the nature, of the God who wrote the law and the absolute impossibility for a human being to, to reach that level then we have completely missed the point if you look at the law and you do not see the character of God but you instead only see do's and don'ts then the fulfillment of the law in Christ is not going to make sense. The fulfillment of the law in Christ is simply going to be an example. It's only going to be he did it, which proves it can be done. And that is blasphemy. That is an impugnment against the very character of Jesus Christ. 
and that should not be tolerated. Like Paul has said many times to many of the objections he has proffered in response to his things, the things he's been saying throughout this letter, God forbid, may it never be, certainly not. But when you look at the law of righteousness as revealed in the pages of the Old Testament, we see God. We see who he is. We see his holiness. We see his righteousness. We see his perfection. We see something that should make us bow down prostrate and say we shall surely die for we have seen the Lord that's what the law is meant to instill in the people of God I'm not saying don't hear what I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a standard so high that we shouldn't even bother trying I'm saying it's a standard so high that it should reveal to us how inept and incapable we truly are, regardless of how hard we try. So this righteousness of the law cannot be attained by obedience to the law. It can only be obtained by faith. When you come face to face with your insufficiency, you must turn to the one who is sufficient. And that is Jesus. You must turn to the one who did accomplish, who did fulfill the law. And that one has come in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And it is only by faith in him and in what he did all the way up to and including the cross, the tomb, the ascension, and his eventual return. It is only in faith in him that righteousness can be obtained. But what does Paul say about the people of Israel? He says that instead of faith, they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now what Paul is doing here is he's clearly referencing passages in Isaiah and also in one of the Psalms regarding, regarding the coming Messiah. But, he, but he's referred to not just here by Paul but also in these previous passages, one which he quotes in the next verse, this Messiah is referred to as a stumbling stone. What does that mean? The people of Israel stumbled at this stumbling stone. So rather than recognizing and turning to this Messiah whom they've waited for, whom they longed for, whom they prayed for, whom they've been on the lookout for his coming. They instead, when he arrives 
on the scene, like a rock in their path, they trip over him. They don't recognize him for who he is. They instead stumble or your translation might say trip or it might say something to that effect. They stumble at his coming. Why? Because he came preaching the truth but they were consumed in the lie. He came preaching salvation by grace through faith but they were so committed to salvation by works through effort. How many in the church today, in the visible church today, are so married, so committed to salvation by grace through effort? I'm sorry, by works through effort. Instead of salvation by grace through faith, as proclaimed by Jesus himself. How often in our day-to-day -day lives do we again default back to salvation by works through effort instead of salvation by grace through faith? How often, and I'm, friends, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody in this room. I'm talking to Sean. How often do I, in my day-to-day -day life, forget the gospel? How often in my day-to-day -day life do I go about my business and I operate under that natural man's assumption of do well and you will be rewarded, do poorly and you will be cursed? It's too often. far too often that I forget the gospel. Martin Luther was once asked, why do you preach the gospel to your people every day? He replied, because every day my people forget. And friends, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And let me remind you that as Paul has so clearly put it in the pages of this letter, we are incapable of even preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. So return to the word. Return to that word which your God and King and Master and Lord and Savior and Redeemer and Friend has given you. Return to the word and let the Spirit preach the gospel to you daily. Because my friends, if you go a day without it, that is a day you will spend trying to earn your way back into the graces of God when you can't. Paul is reminding the Jewish people in this original congregation, you can't earn your way to God. And he's reminding the people, the church of 21st century America, you can't earn 
your way to God. The way to God has been paved for you. Jesus came, he flattened the path and paved it over so that his people may walk across it into the presence of God. So preach the gospel to yourself daily by opening the word instead of stumbling over that stumbling stone. Let Christ not be a rock in your path to trip you up, but may he be a stone in the pavement to get you there. Paul continues, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So here Paul is quoting where he's drawing that imagery from, and that is particularly in the book of Isaiah, the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is a, a book he's been particularly fond of quoting in this chapter of Romans. But he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. This is God. This is God talking to his people, saying, when the Messiah comes, you're not all going to celebrate. You're not all going to glorify me and worship me. Instead, many of you are going to trip and fall. Many of you are going to not even notice him, and still you'll trip and fall. Many of you will see him and notice him, and even though you're looking right at him, you're still going to trip and fall. God here is saying to his people in Isaiah and again to the church through Paul, he's saying that this Messiah coming, who Paul has, has linked to another passage um, regarding the, this stone imagery where in, the, in one passage the stone is God, in another passage the stone is the Messiah, and here Paul is linking them, showing, yeah, we're talking about the same guy, the same God. The stone who was the God is also the stone who was the Messiah, thereby showing even further and demonstrating even further that this standard of righteousness that he's been so expounding upon can only be obtained and held by the one who it originally reflects anyways. This level of righteousness can only be obtained by God because he wrote the law and he is the only one of his kind. This stumbling stone that he lays in Zion is not just a stumbling stone, but it's a rock of offense. And this idea of a rock of offense, meaning, and I have a hard time reading that, and not going back to the story of Cain and Abel. When Cain slew Abel, presumably with a rock. So not just a stumbling stone as in something that's in your path to cause you to trip and fall, but it's also a rock of offense. This is a weapon in the hand of God. This Messiah isn't merely coming to trip you up. 
It's coming to slay those who do not receive him. So this Messiah, this stumbling stone, this rock of offense, though he be rejected by many, by many who are called by the name of God even, will be their very undoing. You either believe on him by grace through faith, or you deny him by justice to wrath. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So this stumbling stone, this rock of offense, it's not an idea, it's not a concept, it's not a teaching, an object. He's a person. And whoever believes on him he is a person. He is a person who is accomplishing for his people what they are incapable of accomplishing for themselves. Obtaining through the law of righteousness. And whoever believes on him, on this stumbling stone, on this rock of offense. Remember what Jesus himself referred to himself as, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this idea of a cornerstone actually has two particular applications that the, that the first century mind would get. The first one being it's essentially a guide stone when laying the foundation of a building. This cornerstone is the first stone you lay and it is from that stone which determines the shape the building is going to take. It's because you have to you have to lead off of that stone. You have to take your lead off that stone. You have to build or or stretch the foundation according to how that stone is placed. So he is the chief cornerstone in the foundation of the Christian faith, but he is also Another uh, another way that this word can be used is essentially a capstone in an arch. So when they build an arch, I don't know if you've ever seen this, they built the two sides and they have to keep the two sides supported from the ground up until they get to the very last stone that needs to be placed, the capstone. And when they drop the capstone in, the force of the two sides push against that capstone and that's what keeps it up so this idea that Jesus is not only the one we take our guidance from we take our lead from who holds us up but he's also the one who keeps us from falling he is the one as Jonathan Edwards once put it he is the one that is holding us up by essentially the spider web of his grace. And that's how we dangle. Were it not for his grace and his grace alone, we would fall into his wrath and to his judgment and to his justice, which we so rightly deserve. And whoever believes on this one 
this Messiah, this promised one, whom many in the people of God have already rejected, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And the shame, this the shame idea has, has two aspects. There is a, a temporal aspect, a time aspect, in which regardless of your encounters with a lost and dying world, as a Christian, you will not be put to shame. In your conversations, in your debates, in your arguments with those you know, those you don't know, those you love, those who may not love you. Even when they think they won, you won't be put to shame. You won't experience that deep internal shame that somebody who's just lost a debate would feel, or somebody who's just lost an argument would feel. Why? Because if you're standing with Christ, regardless of how well those who oppose think they do, they lose. Regardless of how well articulated their rebellion is, it's still rebellion, and it ends in the ultimate shame. The shame of wrath. The shame of judgment. The shame of separation from God forever. That's the second aspect. You, believer, whoever believes on this Messiah, on this stumbling stone, whoever does not trip over this stone, but believes on him, trusts in him, continually and everlastingly relies upon him, that one will not experience the eternal shame from God. But you will instead, good Christian, good brother and sister, you will enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you, God, to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you, to marvel at the truth displayed before our very eyes. There is so much that we don't understand. There is so much that naturally we don't even want to like. But your spirit humbles your people to receive your word. For our own sanctification, to grow us in Christ-likeness, and for your glorification, that you would be honored and worshipped throughout your creation. God, may we not ever ever take you for granted. May we never, may we never truly default to a works-based salvation that depends upon our obedience to your law, but may you always bring us back to the gospel, to the attaining of righteousness by faith. So that you may get the glory. 
and not us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.